suppose as, a, as an opening salvo, since, you know, days are getting brighter, it is the day of love, you know, uh, tell me something, <laughs> you know, Matt, that made you happy today. Well, I don't know if it made me happy, but um, my partner was furious with me, just sort of apropos of nothing, really, when she woke up, because she assumed, without checking, that I would have forgotten Valentine's Day, and she was sort of cross preemptively. And it turned out I actually am an excellent husband and had actually remembered Valentine's Day was very well prepared, had hidden from her view, lovely breakfast, uh, flowers, champagne, wine uh, of the same brand that we had at our wedding, and um, tickets to Alton Towers. So a moral victory. And uh, uh, after we finish recording this, um, we're going to have a lovely uh, date night. So it's going to be very, very nice. That sounds very sweet. That's so nice. Um... And, but but you know it's also nice to be spending it with my um my podcast uh, boyfriend. Yes, yes. As, well. uh, uh, as my girlfriend jokes, all of the uh, middle aged men that I work with are all my boyfriends. But um, do you know what? <laughs> um, I I recently said online, I think it was a, qu- a prompt or something that was like, if you could like smell one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? And like I said, it, that's spe- there's a specific kind of smell in like ireland like i grew up in rural ireland between it's like the last two weeks in february first week in march where it's like nature is blooming and like you know it's like the world is being reborn it's just this indescribable smell of nature but this morning like i usually go outside um when i wake up so i wake up at like quarter to seven every morning and i go out and have a coffee out in a the back garden in the building that i'm living in and this more, and usually I have my headphones on, you know, as, as people with uh, ADD or ADHD will know, you know, mornings aren't the best time. You're a little bit sluggish, but um, I usually wear like my headphones and just like listen to something to like pass the time. But this morning, you know, I spotted a little robin in the tree that is in the garden next door. And I just took my headphones off and I, you know, just listened to the bird songs and watched the robin for five minutes and drank my coffee until it uh, flew away and it really set me up for a really nice day not gonna lie that's, that's really lovely that's i i really do lovely. I, I do have a kind heart i i'm i'm not all uh piss and vinegar as some people might think <laughs> but matt also uh since someone said it to me uh last week and i forgot to intro the show last week you're very welcome <laughs> to beneath the skin the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing I am one of your hosts, Thomas O'Mahony, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. Hello again. Um, yeah, I want to. I, we'll, 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 we'll touch. We've set up some nice themes there about nature and about love uh, and about piss and vinegar. I think we'll probably return to all of those yeah, in this yeah. episode and the the coming up uh, continuation of our series on the history of tattooing in Japan. But uh, before we get into that, uh, just as a quick note. Uh, one, we have a live show at Bratton, Brighton Tattoo Convention um, in two weeks' time. Or is that? No, it's next week. Next weekend on the 25th of February, we will be in the Sky Bar at 1pm at lunchtime, so you can get yourself a bit of lunch and listen to us live. We're going to be talking about the history of tattoo conventions and a lot of other stuff. And also, if you don't already, make sure to check out Check us out on Instagram. Like we said on last week's episode, we went to the Jesse Knight collection in Wales and we've been posting a lot of really cool photos from that collection. But 
We're also posting a lot of interesting tattoo ephemera and other stuff, so make sure to check us out. It's Beneath the Skin Pod on uh, Instagram. But yeah, let's get into the history of tattooing in Japan, part two. Part two. So I think we might have said on the first series this is going to be three parts, but we, well, I executively decided it's going to be a four-parter because I think there's so much to say, you know, and uh, as I said on the last episode, uh, we're also only really covering this in absolute, you know, quick podcasty surface detail. Um, there's not, a, frustratingly, not a huge amount of great material on on these histories in English. There's more in Japanese. Um, but again, uh, go and pick up still the best book on this stuff, um, uh, Irizumi by uh, R.W. Van Gulik from 1982, which lays out, you know, a, a good amount of the kind of basic structure of these stories. Um, and all of them will have you know, much more in-depth rabbit holes to run down, even as we're covering it, you know, over the course of four episodes. So like, you know, last episode, we spoke pretty exclusively about um, indigenous tattooing in Japan with a particular focus on on the Ainu. There are some other indigenous traditions we didn't go into as much detail on, but we were talking about Japanese tattooing uh, or tattooing in Japan that isn't quite of the kind uh, that, we might imagine when we use that phrase, you know, Jap- Japanese tattooing today. Um, what I want to start to do now is actually talk about the origins of, yeah, what we what we think of as as Japanese tattooing today. That kind of, you know, the dragons and the chrysanthemums and the cherry blossoms and the the back pieces and all all of that stuff. And um, yes, so when we left off last episode, we were talking. We kind of ended on the point of. Japan becoming a unified country. So what we're seeing now is that various different, you know, regions within Japan are now becoming what we would consider a country. And what we're going into is what's traditionally called the Edo period. Isn't that correct, Matt? More or less. I mean, so we, we some of our discussion last week had a kind of historical crossover with what we're going to be talking about today. Um, because, yeah, Japan, as we also mentioned last uh last episode was essentially closed off to the outside world for about 250 years from about 1600. Um, Japan had been not a, a modern nation state uh, in the, in the conventional sense. It was a kind of group. It was a, you know, a, 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 a constantly a kind of civil war, varying kind of warlords and feudal lords fighting over different bits of territories over centuries. Um, as European expansion began um with the era of you know the age of sail and the year of colonialism basically christians started showing up uh largely christians the the christians i think we mentioned this a bit last last week as well largely from portugal um and holland and the the feudal lords in japan again i'm really simplifying this story but the feudal lords in japan basically just didn't want japan to be christianized and so they basically banned Japanese people from leaving Japan and they banned foreigners from coming to Japan. Other than a very, very small, very constrained bit of interaction at the port of Nagasaki, which is where Chinese and um, Dutch eventually uh, merchants were able to trade, but they weren't allowed to travel on the, in the interior of the country, etc. Mm. So what that created was, was this country that was yeah, really out of the view of the rest of the world, more or less, for a very, very long time, and for a very particular set of practices to kind of grow up 
quite undisturbed. Um, I was reminding, I was um, visiting some friends at the weekend and I was reminding them uh, of uh, this amazing fact, which just sort of illustrates how weird uh, this history is. Given the temporality of the three prongs of this story, um, this would have been possible. A samurai could have sent a fax to Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Yeah, when you said... When you sent this to me, it prompted me to go straight to Wikipedia to verify this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in a practical sense, it couldn't have happened. But in terms of the time periods involved, um, the samurai existed way later than I think we imagine. um, And the fax machine or the technology that underpins fax machines was invented way earlier than you might imagine. Um, And they cross over in the uh, uh, around about the middle of the uh, of the 1800s. So that, this is this is the you know, Japan is a weird country out of time for from between 1600 to about eight, well to about 1855 or so. So let's let's really rewind um, again to sort of talk a little bit about some of the, the older histories of the more um, the 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 the, uh, the 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 mainstream uh, Japanese population rather you know the kind of rather than the indigenous Ainu that we talked about last week. Um, the first records we have of tattooing in Japan that aren't indigenous are essentially from Chinese accounts um, that discuss punishment tattooing, basically. Tattooing used as um, as a way of either uh, stigmatizing a criminal um, to, you know, as a deterrent in some respects, but also to allow, you know, people in the community to see that punishments had been carried out. Um, in Japanese, you basically have these two words that are kind of interchangeable, more or less. One is uh, irezumi. Uh, again, apologies to anyone listening who speaks Japanese because um, I do not. But um, irezumi basically means to put, to put in, to bring in, to insert, and zumi or sumi meaning ink, so in- inserting ink. And the other one is hori mono. Hori, which you hear a lot in the names of tattoo artists. Um, means to engrave, puncture, or incise, and mono means object or thing. So we have irazumi, inserting ink, and we have horimono, engraving objects, engraving things. Um, actually, they become pretty equivalent in modern uh, Japanese discourse, but actually early on um, in the kind of second half of the 17th century, for example, irazumi only refers to the punishment tattooing of criminals, whereas horimono was the term used for the representational figurative tattooing, as Gulick says, uh, on the basis of free will and the choice of the tattooed individual. And just a, just a quick question, what sort of punishments would warrant the punishment, or what sort of crimes would warrant the punishment tattooing? Yeah, well, in ancient, in ancient China, they actually had a whole list of um, uh, what, what ends up being called in Chinese ink crimes, so a list of specific crimes that were um, punishable by um, by having a mark largely put onto your face uh, for the for the worst crimes. So we have, for example, um, uh, again quoting from Gulick, Irizumi was applied for relatively mild offences such as flattery with ulterior motives. <laughs> <laughs> Every man in a bar in Clapham <laughs> at the weekend and this weekend will be getting an Irizumi for that. An Irizumi. Um, fraud and extortion, dealing in flawed uh, goods, 
etc. Um, so that was first conviction, Irizumi. Second conviction, death. I mean, look, it, it's funny because I saw that video that was um, Politics Joe did where they were interviewing people in that the most pro-Brexit town in the UK asking people about the death penalty and a guy was saying, you know, oh, why should prisoners have dentists? I, can't, I don't have a dentist. They should be hung up or shot. <laughs> and it is... So with these punishment tattoos, is there a specific kind of set of iconography that's being tattooed or is it just like you are being tattooed thief on your forehead? Not quite. So it, it does vary a bit over time and from even from, from region to region. But um, the earliest ones uh, are facial tattoos, marks, like wide stripes, um, either on the arm, the upper arm, and sometimes on the face. Later on, we start getting... Um, evidence of like say from 1670 in edo the tattooing consisted of the character aku which means bad on your forehead <laughs> um you're a bad person um there's actually photo uh, photographs there's actually drawings uh, which people can find online of, of some of these facial tattoos some of these marks um and you know how they how they change over time this really you know one of the um, interesting sociological ideas about this is also something that you find in discussions of punishment tattooing that was happening in ancient Greece, and I talk a bit about this in the book, that where tattooing was imposed as a punishment, as a response to that, a kind of subcultural practice of tattooing developed to kind of cover up or embellish mm. the criminal marks, right? Um, and th there's some theories about some of the development and changes of indigenous tattooing in the uh, empires bordering ancient Greece that where criminals you know, were, were, were stigmatized, their response was to kind of go home and embellish them and change them. And that led to a development of tattooing style, you know, mm. um, you can, you can imagine that, right? Like if you've got kind of bad guy tattooed on your forehead or a big stripe on your arm, you might then use the same technology of tattooing to kind of cover it up. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it might not work. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some bad cover-ups, you know, in the past, and I can't imagine that rudimentary cover-up tattoos in the 17th century are that much better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I suppose so. I mean, these, these also come, of course, like uh, the, the very idea of punishment tattooing implies that you can, you know, it's, it's a bit glib in a way, right? Thinking about, yeah, you get marked with a tattoo to show that you were a, a criminal but of course to get a tattoo like that you also have to be it's pretty brutal you have to be held down mm. you have to be captured a lot of these tattoos also were um linked with linked punishments like forced labor or penal servitude of various kinds um so yeah we end up you know you, you end up with this pretty kind of brutal system and in fact again these begin the earliest records we have of these um are as early as like 400 AD um mm -hmm. really really early uh going right the way up until uh, the Edo period in the 18th century. So there's sort of over, you know, over a thousand years of this practice. Mm. And, you know, over time, and this happens in China in parallel, various benevolent rulers sort of change the rules, change what you, what, what is and isn't punishable, um, etc. But you can see how against those cultural backgrounds where tattooing has been used as a kind of punishment, why, already there's this kind of stigmatization. And of course, 
you know, those stigmatizations also then play into some of the stuff we talked about last week with the Ainu, because if you then become tattooed, there's a sense that being tattooed is kind of primitive. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of dehumanization happening. And also, like, getting um, tattooed forcibly against your will and, 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 change, and marring the body is also something that's quite spiritually and sort of theologically complicated in, in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So Buddhism, you know, which often prioritizes physical wholeness, phys- um, really, ha- it has a kind of corporeal element to it. Uh, taking someone's control of their body away, marring it, has a an extra layer of, you know, kind of existential horror mm-hmm. than it might do uh, in a different cult- against a different cultural context, right? And just looking at you know illustrated depictions of how these tattoos were applied. The one that I'm looking at right now is that it's two posts with a board nailed to the front and your arms are bound to two posts and you're being pressed against the board. But also there's a rope around your neck to hold your head in place. Yeah. I mean, imagine imagine trying to tattoo someone's face without, you know, without their permission, really. Mm. That's kind of what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So from that's the, you know, we have to then figure out how we get from that very deep history of punishment tattooing to something a bit more modern. And uh, the the earliest kind of examples we have of free will tattooing you know, and people choosing to be tattooed, other than I guess criminals covering things up or changing them to some degree, uh, is a really beautiful little practice, which is again nice for mo- nice for Valentine's Day, um, which is called ira uh, bokuro which is basically a loyalty tattooing practice. So we have like mentions of this as early as the 7th cent- 17th century, so about 1600 or so. And um, it's essentially a dot tattooed on the uh, inside of your thumb uh, and finger, like where you're on the upside of your hand where it meets. And essentially you and a lover or you and a, um, a close confidant would both have dots. And you can imagine if you're holding hands, your dots... You touch your partner's yeah, yeah, yeah. dot, right? So it's this kind of intimate love bond. Um, mm. And iribakuro means literally like putting on of a mole, like putting on of a skin mole. And yeah, these match up when you're holding each other's hands. Um, so this also is something that becomes also part of, um, of sex work culture, which I want to we'll come back to in a second. But yeah, it's this really nice early kind of relationship between... Uh, tattooing and intimacy, tattooing also, and um, yeah, cult, very cultural, culturally specific ideas of 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 love and in, and in, interrelationship, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you know that it, it's very congruent with culture right now, and that you know a lot of people get tattoos to signify their bond with someone, be it love or familial, and you know some things don't really change. I wonder if there was a someone in that period trying to desperately like cover up the dot that lined up with <laughs> someone else's dot because they broke yeah. up. Maybe. I mean, I think, you know, Gulick overdetermines this quite a lot. He's sort of like, well, loyalty is very important in Japanese culture, but of course, like, as you, loyalty is important in every culture. And we find, we find tattooing used to signify emotional bond and, and physical bonds all over the place in the West as well. Um, we got to be careful you know, with over-determining this stuff. Yeah, we don't, also we, love... we don't want we don't want to fall into the trap of orient- Orientalism. 
No, no. And of course, as I said, Gulick's writing this in 1982. So again, uh, it has a particular take on this. But I really like I really like this idea of the kind of, um, you know, this vow tattoo. It also, there's also this general practice, again, of changing your body as a pledge of allegiance. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, uh, in the pleasure quarter. So Edo, uh, which, you know, which is what Tokyo was called um, when it was founded, had um, a, a, a part of the city that was sort of don- uh, devoted to what was called amusements. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the side effects of Japan being closed off to the uh, the world for so long is that you and, and also being a feudal, basically military dictatorship. That's really what the, the Tokugawa shogunate was. What a shogunate is? It's a military dictatorship, basically a military feudal system. Is you have all these men in particular trained for war and no one to fight. <laughs> because you're literally uh, hived off. Um, mm. Also, the class system in Japan is a different in structure to the class system in um, Europe, or, or certainly was. I mean, in, yeah. we have basically four classes, and they're quite differently oriented because of Confucianism. So the there's less of a connection between social class and wealth. Mm. So you, samurai were uh, pretty high up, but like peasants who farmed the land who were very important had a higher social status than rich artists and merchants if you were because you were basically doing stuff that wasn't socially useful and so in the kind of caste system in the class system of ancient japan um you could ha- you could be rich but lower class essentially i'm going to sim- mm-hmm. simplify this quite a lot yeah so, and but just, what that- just for anyone that's interested uh the shinokosho or four divisions of society being composed of the Shi, which is warriors, uh, the No, which is farming peasants, the Ko being craftsmen and artisans, and the Sho being the merchant class. Yeah, exactly. So what that means is you have a kind of interesting situation where the people with quite a lot of money and quite a lot of nice stuff, you know, even there was a bit of, as I said, importation coming of stuff from abroad, but a, a really huge development of arts because you know there was not anything coming in from to the country or not much coming into the country and also um you know no one to fight so people had time mm-hmm. and that a lot a lot of japanese art and craft develops over the course of the um 17th 16th and 17th centuries because everyone has time and what that means is that yeah these amusement courts to spread up to basically kind of allow samurai to pass the time Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is is sex and sex work, right? <laughs> okay. Now, again, prostitution. Uh, it, this is again, there's whole books about this. It's very complicated. Um, a lot of it is obviously romanticized. We do have stories, many stories of you know, basically again, sort of sex slavery essentially for women, but mm-hmm. and 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 men actually. But there are again with even within the kind of courtesan geisha classes there are higher higher end courtesans and the relationship of sex and commercialism in japan is again a complicated subject we haven't got a lot of time to go into here but these um kind of physical loyalty things as as represented by the uh by these vow tattoos also relate to uh, potentially the way that sex workers sex working women would show their allegiance or their loyalty to um uh their basically kind of brothel owner mm. or to even to their clients so um 
She could demonstrate her loyalty by, quote, cutting off a finger or finger joint, tearing out a fingernail, branding with cinders of a pipe or partial or complete cutting off of her hair. So this was a kind of way of showing uh, a bond between a courtesan, between a, a, a sex worker and her lover. And yeah, within that context, this idea of using your body to indicate a vow, indicate mm-hmm. a connection is something that makes quite a lot of sense. Yeah, once so, again, it's it's, you know... We have that continuation of history both in Asia and almost everywhere else of the, the mortification of the flesh. Yeah, exactly. And this becomes in itself a kind of bit of a romantic set of stories. I love these. So around this time, and again, I'll circle back to this a little bit, but basically lit- because of this period of basically peace and isolation, art and literature are really flourishing. And tattooing becomes kind of a big part of the sto- of the storytelling and of the popular imagination and of the art as we'll talk about. So again, there's a lot of poetry um uh, a few ex- a few here again from Gulick like talk about this particular practice these vow tattoos. So in one a pleasure quarter guest uh is mentioned as uh, by a uh, sex working woman who's in this poem a pleasure quarter guest with whom I had exchanged vows of eternal love and his name was tattooed on a hidden part of my arm. And then we have these kind of haiku poems on the beautiful body tattooed mottos by a bunch of needles. With tattooing, it all begins. Impiety to one's parents. In deep blue, the courtesan tattoos her falsehood. Unbecoming is the hidden inscription on the warrior's bow hand. <laughs> Incredible. Right? Isn't that great? Tattooing becomes the bond to draw money. The mother's name on the father's arm is shriveling. Inscribed tattoos when they grow old, it is shameful. On the courtesan's arm, popular names are pierced in. (laughs) And, you know, when we're talking about this, it is kind of important to recognize the influence of neo-confucianism in japan during this period that like right the, the arts and like particularly like poetry like there is quite a lot of poetry written just by like regular people because neo-confucianism in japan at this period placed a heavy emphasis on intellectualism and the arts and expression and kind of the understanding of the world through both artistic expression but like rational reasoning as well so it kind of just helped fuel this artistic movement at the time of you know samurais writing poems yeah and but that's sort of also a a, a backlash right so the social system was very patriarchal obviously marriages would be arranged um Mm. because of this strict class system and so actually if you wanted real romantic love if you wanted romantic relationship bizarrely you'd go and see sex workers mm-hmm. because uh, you know courtesans geishas because it was it was in the amusement quarters in the pleasure quarters that you could actually live a kind of authentic loved life away from the strictures of of, of religion you know mm-hmm. um and again i think that's really interesting there's a kind of in a western context you know the association between tattooing and sex work is 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 also th- imagined and i've talked about this that in my book and it's it's this thing that's meant to be a bit shameful mm-hmm. but in a japanese context with a particular context of the social context that sex worker tattooing or tattooing on on samurais and their lovers is is something that's actually quite a bit more recognizably kind of profound and authentic um than i think that vague description of samurais and the sex workers they were living with 
leaves us to un- understand, at least in the at least in the popular imagination, you know. Yeah, and it's something that we'll come back to in the fourth episode when we talk about the the movement of Orientalism, Orientalism in the twentieth century. That you know there is this kind of wave of popular cultural artifacts around particularly Japanese sex workers after the war and like how that kind of permeates the popular consciousness during the 20th century. But we'll get back to right. that uh, in the fourth episode. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, all right. So, we, so we, we've got this, we've got this kind of sense then that tattooing is something that by the 1700s is something that is, you know, it's kind of a youth culture in a way. It's kind of a subculture in a way. It has all this particular resonance. Um, it has all these taboos already built into it. Um, what we think of as Japanese tattooing today, the big dragons and 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 scenes from woodblock prints and stuff, really isn't mm-hmm. very old, therefore, by historical standards. I think, you know, a lot of the orientalizing that happens of Japanese tattooing and Japanese culture in general, like really imagines it as this ancient, ancient, ancient practice. And we talked last episode about what really ancient Japanese tattooing actually looks like. The the modern Japanese tattooing is really only, you know, seven from 1750. So what's that like? Two, 250, 260 mm-hmm. years old, something like that. It's not that old. Um, and certainly by the time it was revealed to the, the West for the first time, it was only really 100 years old. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that old at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as long ago from the present as like World War I was. So. Mm. Uh, it hasn't got this this inherently ancient form to it. It's quite modern in a in a particularly kind of Japanese way. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month. And you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As. And you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second-skin aftercare bandages. 
Sonoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. And, you know, funnily enough, this sort of idea becomes increasingly relevant as we move, you know, into the future when we're looking at, say, the 20th century. And we will talk more about it in a future episode. But uh, as I'm reading the tattoo murder by Akimitsu Tagagi, there is a fantastic line in the book that like jumped out at me when we were uh, knowing we we're going to have this conversation today. And it's a character having a conversation with another character at a, you know, a tattoo competition, pretty much. And there in the nineteen forties, yeah, in nineteen forty-seven, roundabout. So American GIs are strutting around with their tattoos, and this uh, character who speaks to the protagonist is like essentially talking down on the American GIs. Have you seen the ridiculous American strutting around, showing off their pathetic sushi tattoos? He pointed towards <laughs> a small clump of GIs who were chatting with two young Japanese women in identical short dresses. He goes on to say. Unlike the Japanese tattoo, which flows over the contours of the body like a river over stones, the Americans cover their arms with a hodgepodge of unsightly obvious designs, hearts, anchors, flags, and the like. I suppose an upstart country like the United States doesn't have any folklore or tradition to draw upon, but still, there is no excuse for the total lack of artistry, no imagination, and the shading techniques are appallingly primitive, like something from the Stone Age. The, sto- the subtle shadowing that sets the Japanese tattoo apart is achieved by the use of natural pigments which are applied with immeasurable skill by a true artist manipulating a variety of needles with each bundle of needles encased in a wood handle but the Americans they use a single needle which is why their designs are as thin as a bowl of milk that's been left out in the rain and like it's funny we're talking about that in the context of you know the 16th 17th century and the what we think of as contemporary Japanese traditional tattooing not being that old, that like the cultural idea of what Japanese traditional Japanese tattooing is becomes so solidified so quickly and then becomes in terms of like the monoculture seen as this like ancient art that has existed forever. Yeah, exactly. Right. And actually, um, you know, we have like so Japanese tattoos. This is an. This is. I was just looking up what what was invented in around the same time. So Japanese tattooing is about as old as the fire extinguisher. Okay. Uh, Japanese tattooing is about as old as the sextant. Um, Japanese tattooing is about as old as the spinning jenny. You know, the the, the mm-hmm. spinning wheel. Um, it's actually younger than the steam engine. Oh. Roughly, you know, when we're talking sort of, when we're talking 1750, it's not like January the 1st, 1750, some guy invented tattooing. It's not quite like that. Mm. But this is what we're talking about, right? This is the history. I think because Japan, as I said, feels out of time, you can really think about it as this kind of, you know, completely ancient practice. And actually, yeah, tattooing in Japan of the modern kind is really developing at the same time as the Industrial Revolution's beginning in Europe. Yeah, and I think 
I, if anyone thinks we're maybe being a bit glib about it, it I think this is, you know, the purpose of this show is to dis- talk about tattoo history, but also kind of dispel a lot of myths about it as well, which is, you know, why we're talking yeah. about this. And now, you know, that so that said, right, about its um its its ancientness. This that said, the stories and the iconography um and the and the mythology, of course, is much older than that. Um the the biggest influence on the development of of modern Japanese tattooing, let's call it that, um, is a Chinese uh, book um, or kind of yeah novel, I guess is the best way to describe it, which is called the Water Margin, um, also called occasionally Outlaws of the Marsh. It's a like with all old very old novels, it's very difficult to exact. You know, it will have gone through several variants in different printings, and uh, but but. Essentially, it's set in like the 12th century in China, and it dates from somewhere around uh, the 14th, late, early 14th to maybe as late as the 16th century. So it's traditionally attributed to this author called Shi Nayan, um, who lived between 1296 and 1372, but it wasn't actually referenced uh, anywhere, as far as we can tell. until like the early decades of the 16th century. Anyway, it is basically a story of like folklore, really. It's 108 spirits, 108 kind of ghosts, um, and the themes and, 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 and stories about what happens when these, uh, these monsters and these spirits are released. We have in it, you know, all these themes of, uh, again, that become very, very prevalent in Japanese literature and visual culture, like, uh, it's very funny. It's all. It has lots of relationships with nature. A lot of it is to do with like masculinity and these kind of hero warriors involved who are overcoming various you know, heroes' journey kind of things. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it becomes um, in Japan really, really, really popular um, in basically this period in the 18th century. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of it's kind of comic book. It's folk law it is this huge kind of cultural phenomenon right in 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 japanese it gets called the sui koden uh the sui koden uh and it yeah it becomes like you know everyone's reading it um everyone's kind of engaging with it everyone's learning about it uh and it then also spawns loads of imitators uh loads of other stories you know loads of other similar things and because of its popularity, it also spurs on the development of mass printing techniques because everyone wants to we read love this the book. printing press. We love the printing press on this show. Yeah, well, we're not talking about the printing press. It's all still hand printed, but mm-hmm. it is mass production woodblock printing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, like it, 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 at, at this time, and again, people that kind of have a maybe have a visual imaginary of thinking about artists like Hokusai. Who are um, uh, working uh, around about this time a little bit later on? These I, techniques I, are different. I, uh, I heard that great wave coming from a mile away. <laughs> yeah. So this is basically um, a, a period of Japanese history uh, which gets called uh, a Japanese art, which is called ukiyo-e, right? the floating world, because um, it, from yeah, from the like kind of late 18th century, it's a period where these arts have reached maturity and there's even less conflict and even less um, worry in the world and even more 
basically um, time to to sit and 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 have so much joy. Mm-hmm. So these these tattoo these um these woodblock prints um these very early ones basically also began begin to be taken up by tattooing right because they're super fashionable and i've talked about before in loads of other places that tattooing reflects the visual culture from which it emerges and mm-hmm. you know these images of these heroes and these ghosts and these monsters and these legends basically people want to kind of um uh associate themselves with them mm-hmm. basically and it's very interesting as well in the the context of the art history of japan that you within this 150 year period you see the development of multiple different art forms all kind of reinterpreting and expressing a lot of the same folk tales or kind of stories so you have the development of uh of what would be considered contemporary geisha performance woodblock prints tattoos also poetry music and it's all kind of happening in this period altogether relatively yeah, and and what happens is really as we as I sort of alluded to it earlier on, like this becomes a good way to cover up your 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 punishment tattoos, basically. <laughs> um, so the first people who are really taking this up are like you know kind of vagabonds in a way. Um, these kind of they also get called kind of you know street street nights like these guys that were kind of you know a bit rough a bit ready sometimes you know basically kind of highwaymen mm-hmm. uh basically these men who were at the edges of society but still involved in art and pleasure because they, again those two things are mm-hmm. connected in a different way in japan so they were, would be in europe it then basically um becomes a bit more of a general fashion. So it starts becoming taken up by more everyday people and particularly finds trendiness, I suppose, amongst, um, first of all, you know, uh, what are called planakin carriers, basically male men, mm-hmm. uh, guys who were, yeah, like basically um, moving, you know, taking things around, delivering things. Um, and who were also working as like taxi taxi drivers, essentially, who were like carrying people around on their backs. Um, then we end up with firemen. And I want to talk a bit more specifically about firemen because, again, they become a real staple for a long time of, of, of tattooing culture. Um, in, in Edo, it is the firemen who are, I guess, probably the most famous. There's, there actually are quite a few contemporaneous woodblock prints showing groups of firemen with these big tattoos. And yeah, obviously, like firemen. So, as an aside, again, here's the general history on the tattoo history bit. Edo and Jap- Japan in general burnt to the ground a lot. Uh, most houses were built of wood and paper, and Japan is beset by earthquakes, tsunamis, and uh, volcanoes lighting was obviously done with like lamps and so there were just fires everywhere all the time lots of pictures of, of edo era city edo period you know, not just edo, but other cities in japan have like you can see in the drawings big buckets of water on the roofs because that mm. was basically this kind of firefighting system so firefight firemen are really important um and firefighting as today but certainly back then is a really dangerous job and 
therefore, like all dangerous jobs, comes with a lot of superstition, mm-hmm. comes with a lot of totemism, and comes with a lot of bravado and masculinity. And of course, like tattooing, again, as we see it all, all over the place, lends itself to all of those things, right? It's something that, because it hurts to get and is, and is painful, comes with a kind of you know, macho component. It also lends itself to superstition and magic thinking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the story goes with Fireman um, that the tattooing is a way of like, you know, maybe even saving them from being burnt to death. And a lot mm-hmm. of the, obviously a lot of the designs that you will be familiar with, Tom, are like, you know, carp and water. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is coming from, uh, yeah, this idea that ha- having water on me is going to... Um, save me in fact firemen where wore these because we you know, didn't have like contemporary firefighting gear they'd wear these c- cloaks and these coats that would you then soak them with water before you went into the fire mm-hmm. and those coats themselves were often painted with designs on the inside mm-hmm. um as a kind of decoration and also as a as a sort of quasi magical way of, of of protection mm-hmm. so i want to read um there's again a whole sort of section here uh, in Gulak, and I want to quote him specifically here because he talks about uh, dragons, uh, dragon tattooing, and also um, uh, carp and water. But he says here, quote, um, the opposition between the elements of fire and water brings us back to the uh, situation of tattooed firemen. Tattooed with a dragon featuring such evident water associate characteristics, you know, these kind of serpent y kind of characteristics that make it almost look like a water creature. Mm-hmm. It would seem that Fireman felt himself protected in his confrontation with the oppositional element fire. Such obvious concepts of protection by opposing elements are similarly revealed in the practice of pr- providing roof edge tiles with the name of a river deity. Um, and you can see this in you know architectural designs as well, right? You, you put a dragon on your roof to stop it burning, uh, to stop your house burning down. Mm-hmm. Um, these designs then, right, over the course of the, the sort of hundred or so years, become a way of developing a, you know, it looks cool, it's badass, but it's also a way of, of showing your, your, your attitude. Even if you don't believe literally it's going to stop you burning to death, mm. you can kind of embody yourself. You know, we were talking the other day, you and I, about the, the Black Panther tattoo, the, the very famous Crawling Panther tattoo. And a lot of stereotypical tattoos in the Western context are, symbols of ferocity and bravery and masculinity even in you know some of the earliest tattoos we've ever discovered in ancient egypt from five thousand years ago are of like fearsome animals like bulls there's Mm. something about this kind of you know it's like it's like um like wearing one of those cool howling wolf shirts Mm -hmm. right yeah (laughs) i mean like i i think in the context of why maybe to get a bit philosophical about it i think it is a recognition that like maybe as humans we are at odds with the natural world in terms of like our power over it until obviously the development of modern technology and that these animals exist in symbiosis and in harmony with it and that it maybe it's an attempt to adorn ourselves with symbols of you know these animals that seem to have power over nature and seem to exist without harm in nature yeah, exactly, right? Um and 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 those bec- those are very obvious and basic symbols which have quite clear folk art 
resonance, you know, mm. that then also have important mythological and spiritual associations in various religions as well. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. We, I don't want to go in here into every single possible design, but there's a lot of that kind of thing happening. I think we, we need to be careful about saying this tattoo means this or this tattoo means mm. that, but there is this kind of association between you know imagery and, and meaning in a quite a straightforward way. A um, few other things that became popular, um, not just amongst firemen, um, were uh, things like um, uh, like a spider web on the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing cards uh, on your on your body with the ace on your foot. Good gambler's tattoo. You'd hide the ace <laughs> as if you were cheating <laughs> under your foot. Um, uh, a, a figure of a god of good fortune on your shoulder blade, mm-hmm. um, which you could then move your shoulder to make him laugh or frown. <laughs> and um, even kind of comedy tattoos. So... Uh, Basically, uh, Gulick describes a polka-dotted hand towel tattooed over one shoulder with one end hanging down the back of the body. On the right buttock, a cat was tattooed with one uplifted paw. When the tattooed <laughs> person walked, the cat was set in motion trying to catch the towel. But you know what? I, I love that because I think for people who are interested in tattooing, I think a lot of the time we can see traditional Japanese tattooing as this very serious bit po-faced art form yeah and like it the fact that like it's funny like people are getting funny tattoos they're getting like stupid dumb tattoos as well just shows that once again as we're talked about in the last episode this episode and subsequent episodes it's much more complex and much more varying than we would think yeah of course i think that's a really good point and exactly the point i wanted to make there right that we we do have this sense that it's it's very serious and of course it is serious in 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 many in so many ways, and but it does come with it comes with funniness. It comes with humour. It comes with you know little good little jokes like hiding the ace on your foot. Mm. It comes with sexiness. So there are good stories of tattooed women in the pleasure quarters basically being performing tattooed women. Um, there's one uh, one woman is described uh, in a particular. Uh, early 19th century bonsai period text as tattooed with all sorts of designs, including a water monster on her thigh pointing towards the Jade gate, which is a good, um, (laughs) it's a good euphemism that, uh, naturally the tattooed women attracted a large crowd that flocked together to witness the amusing sight. The women collected money for payments and, and this became a, yeah, a bit of a show. There were even at this point, you know, tattoo, which we, we're going to talk at, at the convention about tattoo conventions, but competitions even mm. began. In fact, we'll talk more about tattoo competitions when we talk with Pascal about the book that you're reading, but they begin quite early, um, about 1830 or so. Uh, and yeah, tattooing is part of, the, it's, it's not just this very serious uh, spiritual practice. It's also part of sex and joy and competition and commerce as well. Um, looking at the time, I think the, the, the last thing I want to mention here before um, we'll, we'll talk next episode about the tattooing that was happening at the time uh, of the Meiji Restoration when, when the Americans arrived in 1858. But uh, the other important part of this first period of the story is, is alongside f- mailmen, palanquin carriers, 
and firemen is is actors, right? Basically celebrities. So a lot of woodblock printing was not meant to be fine art. They, these things are displayed in museums now, both in Japan and in Europe, as pieces of fine art. But a lot of a lot of it was was just popular culture. I mean, I say just popular culture was popular culture. It was they were v- relatively mass produced because woodblock printing allowed editions to be made, and they would reflect, you know, famous actors, famous courtesans, famous members of the uh, courts. They would also be, you know, a lot. Of, there's a whole side story here about Shunga and basically pornography, kind of sexualized erotic imagery, mm. and and as well the like massive amount of uh, woodblock prints that are just mundane kind of everyday life as well. Yeah, I mean they were used for news, uh, you know, telling uh, doing news stories and and talking about the various um, uh, events that were happening. Uh, so basically, actors. Again, you know, sort of like like elsewhere in the world, sort of at the edges of society, living and working and and, and um, experiencing life in the pleasure quarters, in the amusement quarters, uh, began to be tattooed as well. And because they were celebrities, because they were famous in in plays and theatre, wrestlers also come as part of this too. They were reproduced in woodblock prints, and their tattoos were depicted in those prints of mm. the plays they were in, or even as kind of, you know, almost like as pinups, I guess we'd say. And that, again, then sort of starts to push tattooing into a more kind of fashionable, widespread... I mean, it's not it's not ever a mainstream... Don't get me wrong, it's not ever a mainstream thing, but it it does sort of become, you know, kind of trendy and kind of, kind of uh, part of celebrity culture. So we end up with this interesting layering, right? So these heroes from the water margins, the Suri Coden heroes become tattoo designs. And then those tattoo designs are tattooed on, on actors. Then those actors are represented themselves in woodblock prints. So you end up with these really interesting layers of, of design. Um, mm. And it became basically so kind of conventional for actors to be tattooed that on occasion, tattooed actors would wear, um, would wear kind of, you know, body stockings to show that, show that they were t- more tattooed than they actually were. You know, faking it basically as part of their costume. <laughs> it's like a modern, you know, uh, the you know the fake like stick on tattoos that are that you would get as a kid and you'd put on your arms and you'd think, oh, I'm so tattooed. Yeah, and actually, something that um, something that uh, Gulick also points out is that in the earlier periods, you could get away with painting tattoos on because stages were only lit by candlelight. When when electric and more kind of proper lighting came in um people you couldn't get away with having fake tattoos anymore you had to get real ones <laughs> see uh, photoshopping your pictures on instagram isn't a modern problem yeah 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 exactly exactly right that's the kind of i guess modern equivalent of that all of this we're talking more about banning and and social prohibitions on tattooing because they really do kick in properly in the 1860s for reasons that we again alluded to last episode but the first real prohibition that we know about uh, of tattooing comes from 1811. Um, so, you know, really society had gotten pretty decadent. Um, and there was, a, yeah, there was um, a sense as well that things need to change. So this guy called um, Matsudaira Sadanobu, who was a like reformer, basically, he was like, everyone needs to calm down. 
right. <laughs> we, do, we don't want people wearing showy clothing. Um, but actually, the rules that said you can't wear showy clothing just meant that people had really showy linings to their clothes. Okay. So then they banned that, and that also then encouraged people to get tattooed because if you couldn't have fancy clothes, you'd get fancy tattoos. Mm-hmm. So then this rule had to come in to try and forbid tattooing. Um, so this is uh, from 1811. Recently, carefree individuals have been propagating tattooing. They tattoo all sorts of pictures or characters on their whole body. They apply tattooing in black ink and colours. It should be noted, therefore, this is this custom, and particularly the way that unblemished body is defiled, must certainly be called a scandal. Nevertheless, young people consider it fashionable and do not mind being mocked or laughed at by everyone behind their backs. Recently, a number of people who are to be seen who've had themselves tattooed, once they've started on this deplorable practice, it will even extend to the hands and feet, eventually covering the entire body. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, even though the people who have themselves tattooed are of the opinion that others may perhaps approve, the decision has been taken after mature consideration to censor this highly improper behaviour that people freely tattoo themselves without any aversion. <laughs> it, is therefore for- it is therefore forbidden as of this moment. Pass this order on. But like all these other rules, it was completely ignored, right? So <laughs> it didn't actually have any effects. Um, firemen were still getting uh, tattooed. The, the kind of rickshaw carriers, the the, the planican carriers were getting tattooed. Mm-hmm. Um, even before Meiji, some things were getting a bit looser and some visitors that arrived did describe um, seeing tattooed people. So you can see, you know, even in that, and this is, I think, is going to come back to something you, you mentioned a minute ago. We have this idea, I think, of the banning of tattooing uh, in Japan as to do with um, indigeneity and criminality, which is to do with that mm. in part. We also imagine it as this, as you said, very kind of deep and spiritual practice, which mm-hmm. it is. But at the same time, it's also just kids getting cool tattoos to piss off their parents. Some things never <laughs> change. Some things never yeah. change. In in Confucianism, that has a particular again. That's partly what where that stuff about the um uh, the the vow tattooing comes in about breaking away from your parents. Like mm-hmm. your your body belongs to your parents in some senses, and then you can kind of claim autonomy over it. But that's something which cool hip Japanese kids <laughs> have in common <laughs> with with cool hip kids. You know, everywhere children, adolescents carefree people as they're described in that translation are are just doing things that are mm. countercultural and and fun and joyous and likely to annoy their parents because their parents are like what do you look like you look ridiculous <laughs> you idiots yeah you know right? so, some things don't change <laughs> so that's probably a good place to to, to leave this episode because in the next episode on this we will talk about um Really, the the big names. We'll talk about some specific artists like um, like Gonta and Horiyuno. We'll talk about how that tattooing is then viewed and appreciated and understood by Western visitors, and how then Japanese tattooing responds to to the opening up of Japan to the West. But I think, in summary, you know, the kind of Japanese tattooing that we know and love today is not that old even though the imagery itself is, uh, and certainly the, the, um, the, the folklore of it is, is very old indeed. But it's a visual cultural style that comes out of joy, it comes out of idleness, it comes out of artistic creativity, and it comes out of, you know, 
people on the margins of society and kids in a really genuine and loving way trying to kind of rub mainstream society up the wrong way and like you know <laughs> such as it always been love it so with that is the end of this episode like we said we're going to take it up next week or next episode and um, next week we actually have a very very special bonus episode matt do you want to tell people what we're going to be talking about yeah so um as you mentioned you are reading um this book the tattoo murder um which came out uh in japan in 18 uh excuse me in um, 1848 it's by an art uh, an author called akimitsu tagaki it's kind of a very uh you know agatha christie style pot boiler kind of closed room mystery mm-hmm. and um, we're going to be speaking to pascal bagot uh, a french journalist and author who uh, discovered uh, a few years ago akimatsu, akimatsu tagaki's archive and as we'll talk about if you read the book you can see that tagaki uh, um, spent a lot of time around tattooed people there's a lot of historical truth in the fiction and Pascal discovered his archive of photographs, which depicts a particular kind of side of Japanese tattooing when it was really underground and really a sort of socially taboo and illegal in the 1940s. He's just, he wrote a book a few years ago that's getting republished called The Tattoo Writer um, with images from the book, uh, which you can pre-order now on his website. And we're going to be chatting to him about, basically about this novel, about the things it talks about. And I, well, no spoilers. Um the historical context of it, Japanese mm-hmm. tattooing in the 1940s, and and yeah, like and his research into this really fascinating guy. Um, so yeah, cool. Well, if you want to hear that episode and other episodes like it, as well as hearing episodes like this early, make sure to check us out on Patreon for as little as five quid a month. You can get these free episodes early. You can get bonus episodes like the chat we're going to have with Pascal. Um, you get to support the show. You get to see all the cool stuff that we're doing and if you want to follow us online you can find us up beneath the skin pod also on the patreon if you subscribe at the 15 pound tier you can get a signed copy of matt's book painted people uh, the history of tattooing in 21 people said it right more or less that would do so like i said you can find us online up beneath the skin pod you can find me at goddard at Guinies. you can find matt at matt lotter uh pretty much everywhere and yeah thanks very much make sure to if you enjoyed the show to leave us a review it helps with the algorithm people find us but until then thank you very much and goodbye bye, bye.